All right. Good morning, church. Well, it's a joy to be uh, back with you all. And uh, before we uh, dive into this uh, passage, let me invite us. Let's bow, let's pray, and let's for God's help and understanding. Heavenly Father, we come into this service um, from this past week where perhaps our view of you and our view of who we are in you has become dim, has become foggy. So that's why now, with desperation, God, we turn to you and your holy word which is true light of light. And may that word pierce through the fog. May it dispel the fog that we might behold you, Lord Jesus, and behold who we are in you in a clear way again, which will fill our hearts with greater hope, greater joy, greater desire to pursue your righteousness in our lives, God. I ask for your help, Lord, in my weakness. Uh, would you strengthen me? And may this time be one where it's not me speaking to your people, but ultimately it's you speaking to each and every one here in the way that they need. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, keep your Bible open or your phone on. Uh, as we go through uh, uh, this passage, you'll see... Uh, the points that are being drawn from it. We are now in chapter 6 of Romans. And this marks a turning point as it pretty much begins a new section in the letter on what happens in the life of a person who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, all who have encountered and embraced Jesus by faith are inevitably marked by the same thing. You are forever transformed and transforming person. You're never to be the same again. Now some of you, uh, perhaps as you've become a Christian recently or have come back home to him recently, are experiencing real profound change in your life right now in ways obvious to those around you. Now, I remember when I surrendered my life to Christ as a freshman in college. I mean, just about every area in my life needed to change, and in some areas, I experienced immediate change. For instance, my words. You know, I had this real biting, cursing tongue. I'm like, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I had a potty mouth. And it wasn't helpful to people, but when I came to Christ, almost immediately, not that I became perfect, but almost immediately there was a change where my words became kinder, more uplifting, more helpful to people than not. You know, my shameless arrogance. Now, I was a self-absorbed, cocky person, always trying in, in obvious and subtle ways to show how, how much better, how much uh, smarter I, I believed I was compared to others. You're like, man, he must have been a joy to be around. That dramatically changed when I embraced Christ, where I was putting others before myself for a while. When I came to Christ, I was liberated largely from my enslavement to sexual lust. You know, I was exposed to pornography at an early age through classmates, and I was addicted to that all throughout high school. But when I met the Lord, almost immediately, that struggle, believe it or not, largely went away for a few years. I didn't remember in college having a hard time, believe it or not, averting my eyes and keeping control over that area of my life. What was that change attributed to? A positive mental attitude? Hypnotism? No. It was Jesus. Now, unless you think that I'm this, like, super spiritual alien, unrelatable guy, uh, th that struggle came back uh, after a few years, and I needed to learn to battle 
against that again, but I experienced real, profound, immediate change in that area. But of course, there have been other areas in my life where change has been a long, slow slog. Even seemingly non-existent, as my wife can attest. I mean, my impatience and irritability and my idol of perfectionism. So you just ask her. Um, we all as Christians struggle to change. And many of you struggle perhaps even with the idea of biblical change. You look at your life, and there are many areas where change doesn't seem to be happening at all. You're struggling with the same thing over and over and over again. Perhaps in your relationships as well, in your marriage, just stuck Perhaps you feel like you're even regressing in some area. If there's any change at all, it feels like it's at the rate of glaciers growing or melting. Perhaps you're stuck in the bondage of secret addiction. And you've made resolution after resolution to change. But you've relapsed again and again, and again. And as you feel perhaps enslaved to that desire, that struggle, that perhaps lost just about all hope to be set free. Now I wonder what you honestly feel about the prospect of real change, spiritual transformation happening in your life. Is it really possible for me well, Romans chapters 6 through 8 is perhaps the preeminent section in the entire Bible that addresses this issue. Whereas chapters 3 to 5, uh, the focus was on our, what? Testing you guys here. Was on our what? Oh, this is poor. <laughs> Pastor Luke is very discouraged here. On our justification. We've been going through that for the past month, right? Hopefully, you have not forgotten our justification where we are declared righteous by the gift of Christ's righteousness bestowed to us. Chapter 6 through 8 now, the focus is on our sanctification, where we actually grow in our own righteousness, where we are being made genuinely holy and godly more and more in our life. And of course, this topic is tremendously important, and that's why we're going to take our time going through these next three chapters for the next few months. They will unpack why it is and how it is that people change. You know, if we haven't been already, we are treading into deep waters here in Romans. And one of the greatest expository, book-by-book, verse-by-verse preachers in church history, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we've quoted throughout this series. He was once asked when he would finally do a series through the book of Romans, because he had never done it, never touched it. His reply was, when I have really understood chapter 6. And then he would get to the book of Romans 12 years later. Perhaps he like it took that long for him to understand. So I joked at Renault West Philly, you know, our senior pastor is on a sabbatical for the next four months. I was like, how convenient that he took a sabbatical now and leaving this task to go through these chapters uh, to the rest of us. And I thanked him for that, right? Well, our, our passage this morning is very dense, but my goal is to have us grasp just the gist of these verses, which we can do by understanding these two so we're going to look at why believers in Christ must change. And secondly, we're going to look at the first step to change. Okay, so first, why believers in Christ must change. And under this, we'll see two reasons why. So there's actually three points. Okay? I'm not shortchanging you this morning. All right? So first, why believers in Christ must change. Paul, at the beginning of this passage begins to raise this question that people have in their mind when they hear the radical good news of the gospel that salvation is 
received, not achieved by God's free grace. Perhaps you have thought, verse 1, yourself at some point. And the question raises, can we continue in sin? Can we continue go on sinning because so that grace may abound? I mean, have you ever thought that yourself at some point? If we have received salvation by grace alone and we stand in that grace no matter what, as we saw in chapter 5, then what is the incentive in living righteously? Won't grace, won't God's forgiveness always cover us? Perhaps that thought has crossed your mind. You know, there are many out there in our country who claim to believe in Jesus, but who view God's grace as a license to do whatever they want and to remain unchanged. We call that term, that view, licentiousness. A license to live as you please. Now, this question in verse 1 actually goes even farther with some spiritual smarties having this thinking. They're asking, should we? Are we to continue in sin? Because the thinking goes, if we continue sinning, won't God's grace abound to us all the more? And then won't God be more glorified? Won't be he more magnified because his grace abounds to us? Now to all this kind of thinking, how does Paul respond? What do you see there in verse 2? He says, by no means. Now this isn't Paul like a grandfather saying, oh no, no, no. No, you mustn't think like that. No, you mustn't Take advantage and be so inconsiderate to uh, abuse God's grace like that. No, this is him with force saying, may it never be. The phrase in the Greek is meganoito. Strong, emphatic phrase. Basically him saying, how can you even think such a thing? How is that even possible? Now, why is it that he says that with force? Well, Paul points to two realities for believers in Christ, which are really tied to each other. Why not only we can change, but like I said with this point, we must change. First, believers in Christ must change because we are united with Jesus Christ. Here we are introduced to one of the central, perhaps most neglected truths of the New Testament for believers. The reality of what we call our union with Jesus Christ. Do you realize that the Apostle Paul, in all his writings, never used the word Christian to describe believers? That word Christian actually only appears three times in the Bible, from my account. Twice in the book of Acts. And that was when the world, unbelievers, were referring to Christians by this name. And once in the book of Peter. But it is rare that believers back then referred to themselves this way, even though that's the common term for us today. Paul's by far favorite and most fundamental way of describing believers was to say that they are in Christ, in him, with Christ, or flip side, Christ in me. These are all shorthand phrases that get at this reality of our union with Christ. If you're to read through Paul's letters, you know, these phrases are so easy to gloss over and miss. But if you have an eye to see any one of these phrases, you'll see that they are all over. Almost in every paragraph. That's how central this reality is for believers. Even though, sadly, it's rarely talked about. Now, what do we mean by union with Jesus Christ? What is this reality? 
Well, we can understand this by looking at the images the New Testament uses to describe this reality, to help us grasp this. And one of those images is marriage. Marriage. Um, We're into wedding season again, and pretty much at every wedding, the minister will emphasize that this wedding, this marriage, every human marriage is to ultimately point to what? Our intimate union with Christ, who is our groom, and we are his bride. You know, um, and you've heard this before about what's true about the marital union. And that what is true of your spouse and what belongs to your spouse through marriage becomes true of you and belongs to you. Now, perhaps uh, the most anticipated wedding of the year in the world, I mean, I, I could care less, but uh, is with Britain's Prince Harry and Meghan Markle on May 19th. Actually, one day before my one-year wedding anniversary. And uh, Meghan Markle, on that day, who is an American commoner, born and raised in L.A., will in an instant, through that ceremony, become British royalty and receive all the honor and wealth that that entails. Because what's true of her literal prince of a husband will then be true of her. You know, when Rachel and I got married, pretty much the same kind of thing happened. You know, overnight, through that ceremony, Rachel became part of the legendary Han Dynasty. Much more exclusive than the Kim clan. I mean, Kims are a dime a dozen, right? The legendary Han Dynasty. We have a chain of some of the best restaurants in this area. The best dandan noodles. Right? She came, not only did she become part of the Han Dynasty, it happened the other way as well. What is true of her became true of me. You know, growing up, I always wanted a big family. And uh, it was just the three of us, my parents and their only kid, their only son. And I knew that after a certain point, that dream of a big family, siblings, just wasn't going to happen. But you know what? Overnight, in an instant, what's true of Rachel's family, her sweet parents, and two awesome siblings who live actually all in Philly, became my family. So I have another pair of sweet parents living nearby, and I have two awesome siblings to hang out with now. And my dream came true overnight. Possessions as well. What, what's true of Rachel's car? She has a nice Honda CRV. Has now become my car. I drive that way more than she does now. So that I no longer have to drive my, I have this boxcar Scion. You know what a Scion is? That has the power basically of a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I no longer have to drive that thing anymore. It's sitting at the Emmanuel Church parking lot. I haven't touched it for months. More seriously, over the course of this past year, marriage, I've really learned and understood more and more what it means to not just identify myself as I, but to identify as us. That what's true of Rachel and her experience is really in a way true of me. That her happiness is my happiness. There's really a lot of truth in happy wife, happy life. What's true of Rachel's struggles? It's true of me. Her tears are my tears. You know, as you look through this passage, we see that Paul describes how through our union with Christ by faith, what is true of Jesus and what he has experienced is now true of us and our experience. So let's just quickly walk through. This is all over this passage. Verse 3, we see how we were united, and Paul uses the word baptized, 
united into Christ Jesus, specifically into what? Into his death. Verse 4, we were buried with Christ. Also in verse 4, what's implied is just as Christ was raised from the dead, we, now being united to him, can walk in the newness of life. Verse 5 is a summary statement of all this, which clearly says it. For we have been united, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then verse 6, our old self, what we saw last week in chapter 5, our old self united to Adam, our fallen depraved self, was now crucified with Jesus. So what we celebrated a couple weeks ago on Good Friday and Easter, what we remembered, Christ's death and resurrection, isn't just what happened to him, but in a real spiritual sense, it has happened to us. We were crucified with Christ in his crucifixion. We were dead and buried in that tomb with him. We are resurrected with Christ. Later in chapter 8, verse 17, we'll see. We will be glorified with Christ. We are fellow heirs receiving the inheritance with Christ. Now marriage isn't the only metaphor for union with Christ. Because as intimate as the bond is that spouses have, they are still two individuals who can if absolutely need be, survive without the other. But our union with Christ goes even further in a vital, organic way. The New Testament describes Jesus as the foundation, as the cornerstone, and we are the living stones that are brought to be tied to this foundation as one building, the temple. You see, if there's no foundation... There's no building. Jesus is the head, and we are his body, the body of Christ. There's no head, there's no body. John chapter 15 says, Jesus is the vine, and we are his branches in him. You know, I came across um, this fascinating work by an art professor at Syracuse University. And what he's done, he's grown a tree of 40 fruits, 40 different kinds of stone fruits, like peaches and plums and cherries, all on one tree. So if you see the Im- the top image actually is a computerized image of what it's hopefully it's going to look like uh, years from now. See all the different colors of the leaves and stuff like that. And then you see at the bottom, even on one large branch, just that really strange uh, picture of different fruits. How did he do this? Well, he took branches from different kinds of fruit trees and he grafted them very, very carefully into one living tree root. And um, he's been planting these trees of 40 fruits in different states for artistic reasons. He's an art professor and also I think for botanical reasons as well, to conserve space, things like that. It's fascinating work. And this is a powerful image for us. Because what were we outside of Christ? We were dead branches. You you can pick up a dead branch, you can water it all you want, and it will do nothing. But what happens when you take a branch and you tie it in to a living root? organically bonded to a constant life source. What happens? Like this tree, it can't help but grow and bear fruit. Now do you see why Paul says, no way to any believer in Christ who would think about embracing sin as their lifestyle of choice. You know, a person who has this kind of cavalier attitude of verse 1 towards sin, you know what it likely shows? It likely shows that they are not united to Christ. 
by genuine faith. But if you are vitally joined to the living vine and his life-changing power flows in you and through you, you know, Christ is not just above you. Christ is not just beside you, as the hymn says. Christ is now in you. You can't get more united than that. If that's true of you, then you cannot help but grow and bear the fruit of a holy, obedient life away from sin and into righteousness. That's why Paul says, by no means. Now that's the first reality. What's the second reality in this passage for why believers must change? And that's that we are dead to sin. And also the flip side of that, we are alive to God because we are dead to sin and alive to God. And this is really just a corollary of our union with Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. In our union with him, our relationship to sin has decisively and irreversibly changed. Look at verse 2. Notice the immediate response Paul gives right after he says, by no means. What's immediately right out of his mouth there? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Before Christ, in our total depravity, remember we saw that in chapters 2 and 3, in our total depravity united to Adam, we were dead in sin unable, unwilling to seek after God and to pursue righteousness. Right? We confess that in the time of confession. But through Christ, we go from being dead in sin to now being dead to sin. And notice that this is in the past tense. Paul is not saying we are dying to sin or we will die to sin. No, he says we are dead to sin, done with. Past tense. Now when you hear that phrase, probably you're thinking, what in the world do you mean by that, Paul? What are you talking about? Because when I see, when I feel my struggle with my addiction, with my pride, with my anger, with my bitterness, my lust, my fear, my envy, and on and on, I feel the opposite of being dead to sin. What the heck do you mean by that, Paul? Well, what Paul means by here, of course, is not that we have stopped sinning or that we do not struggle, even greatly struggle with sin anymore. And we know that because later in this passage, in chapter, uh, verse 12, Paul commands us, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Why in the world would he command that if we have stopped sinning or stopped struggling with sin? So what does he mean here? What Paul is talking about is an overthrow in the authority that reigns over our lives. You know, when Paul talks about sin in the book of Romans, and scholars have written volumes about this, he's not talking just talking about the wrong things that we do. You know, the Sunday school answer, what is sin? Anything you think, do, uh, and feel that disobeys God, breaks his commands, something like that. When Paul talks about sin, he's not just talking about the ungodly desires and actions of our lives. He talks about sin as a power that has mastery over us. I've almost flipped this cup a few times now. (laughs) Got to be careful. Alienated from Christ, humanity is hopelessly under the absolute control of sin. We cannot but sin and continue in it. But you know what? The moment you become a Christian, you are no longer under sin's death grip. Remember what we say about our union with Jesus. What's true of Christ and his experience is now true of us. So verse 10, look at verse 10. 
for the death Jesus died. He died to sin once for all. Done deal, no going back. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And I agree with the scholars studying the overall context here to mean that Jesus died not just to the guilt of sin, but here this verse is talking about Jesus died to the power of sin that he was subject to, that he was constantly tested by his whole life from birth all the way to the cross, tested by Satan day in, day out. And when he died on the cross, he overcame, he overthrew the power, the reign, the authority of sin over his life and over this world. And so what's true of him has become true of us. Unite him, we not only have died to the guilt of sin, that is what? That is our justification. But we have also now died to the reigning power of sin over us, the beginning of our sanctification. We believers are no more totally depraved. You get that? That is not the description of the Christian. We are dead to sin, alive to God, genuinely able, with a new nature, by the power of Christ in us, to walk in the newness of a genuinely righteous, holy life. Now, there's a vivid metaphor for for this that I use all the time, and Forgive me if you've heard this many times before, but there's just really nothing like it that that fits this well. And that's that the ruling power of sin, the reign of sin over us that Paul is talking about here, is like a chicken that gets its head cut off. Now, I've seen this sorcery with my own eyes. Uh, On my first mission trip, which was to New Mexico, uh, ministering to the Navajo people, And in the morning, we beheaded some chickens for our dinner that we're going to have later that night. And when we did that, what happened? The cliche is true. These beheaded chickens were running wild. I will never forget that image. And here's a picture from that trip. Actually, actually for those of you who know who Pastor Dan Hyun is, um, Elder uh, Joe's brother, he's leading our trip. We kind of got smarter over time after like the third or fourth chicken where we start to hold on to their legs so they wouldn't run around exhausting ourselves like Mickey made Rocky do in his boxing training, chasing around headless chickens. Now, I was curious how long a chicken can go, a beheaded chicken can go on surviving. I came across this true story of Mike the Headless Chicken known as Miracle Mike. And this back in the uh, 40s. Mike the Headless Chicken, after his head was cut off, lived for 18 months. Something about um, the axe missing its main vein or something like that. Uh, I don't know biology too well, but lived for 18 months. It was featured on the cover of Time magazine. It was brought all over the U.S. on a tour so people could pay money to see this thing. It has its own Wikipedia page. You can go and check that out. It was fed by dropping this milk-water mix through its exposed throat with an eyedropper. And then one day, actually, it choked on something stuck in its throat, and so it finally keeled over. I'm searing this image into your brain so that you never forget it to remind you that the ruling power of sin over your life, its death grip, has been decapitated like a chicken. Now let me ask you, when a chicken gets its head cut off, is it dead or not? Let me ask you. I think it is dead. There's no recovering from that. There's no going back from that. It is dead. And yet, even though it is dead, you're dead to it. Just like Mike the Headless Chicken, for a long time, it is still 
kicking and screaming, running around in your life. In fact, actually, sin, even though you're dead to its power, is going to be running around kicking and screaming in your life for the end of, till the end of your days. And you'll be fighting against it until one day you'll finally see your sin keel over and be done with for good. Now, this is all like heady and all that. Oh, by the way, skip this. Verse 6. Verse 6 summarizes this all. It says, We know that our old self, our totally depraved self in Adam, was crucified with him, was decapitated, beheaded, in order that, so that the body of sin, the headless chicken running around still in our lives, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, this is all abstract and heady, so I want this to be practical for us. What is proof that you're dead to sin, that verse 2 is true of you, when you're facing temptation? when you're tempted to choose sin instead of righteousness, what's proof that you are dead to the absolute supremacy of sin over your life? The fact that you fight the good fight of faith in resisting sin and pursuing righteousness. The proof is that there is any holy struggle in you at all. Because do you realize that people dead in sin cannot rebel against their sin and fight for God's holiness? They're not able to. And what's proof that you're dead to sin, the absolute supremacy of sin over your life, when you fall into sin? That sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? How do you know that you're dead to sin even when you commit sin? It's that when you do fall into sin, it grieves you. You're brought low in brokenness and contrition. That like King David in Psalm 51, you can genuinely repent of it. You own it. You confess it. You turn away from it, yearning for God's pardoning and empowering grace. As the Puritan John Owen put it, sin in the believer is a burden that afflicts you rather than a pleasure that delights you. When you choose sin over obedience, when you choose to do that, deep down inside, in your soul, it doesn't delight you. It doesn't make you proud. It burdens you. It feels like an affliction. It makes you feel diseased spiritually. And it makes you cry out for God's forgiveness, for his cleansing, for his liberating power to be more manifest in your life. Don't ever take for granted the ability to genuinely repent of sin. Do you understand that people dead in sin cannot, are unable, unwillingly, unwilling to genuinely repent? What we do every Sunday during the worship service, what really we are to do as a daily discipline, a lifestyle of repentance. You know, some of you still have this idea that repentance is this negative thing, this bad thing. Do you see that repentance is a miracle? Repentance is a gift? Don't ever take that for granted, the ability to see it for what it is, own it, confess it, and turn away from it in God's grace. That's the sign, that's the proof of Christ in And so would you take massive hope this morning? Some of you are sitting here this morning and when you look at your life, 
you look at your relationship with God, you look at your spiritual progress, it feels like it's like you're walking in quicksand. Some of you feel like you're going backwards rather than forward. For all of us, in some ways, it's very up and down. But would you really be encouraged that if there's any struggle in you, if you're engaged in a lifestyle of fighting against your sin, of repenting, that is the evidence that you are united to Jesus, that you are dead to sin once for all and alive to God, and that as you fight your sin, all your sin, all of it, no matter how fierce the struggle is right now, one day you will see it all lie dead once and for all at your feet. And with that, let's turn to the last point. This passage tells us, in light of all these realities, the first step to change. What's the first step? Well, Paul's commands that come at the end of this passage in verses 11 to 14, that we are to obey, are foundational for us if we're to ever make progress, see sin weakened in our lives and righteousness flourish. Look at these commands. Let's look at verse 11. What does Paul command there? So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But didn't Paul just explain that's already true? You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's already taken verse after verse to say that's true of you. That's the indicative. So why must we now consider ourselves that? Why we commanded that? Well, that's the point. Because you know what Paul is saying? When you're sinning, you're forgetting that reality. You're betraying that reality. And what Paul is saying through this command is, remember who you are. Remember your status now. Remember your identity. You know, a way that we can put it is, this command is telling us, be what you already are in Christ. Be what you already are in Christ. That's what Paul is commanding. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Well, weren't we just told through these verses that sin doesn't reign anymore over our lives? We're dead to the power of sin? Precisely. So believe it and live like it. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Let me add in there daily we are to do this. Present yourselves to God as what? Remembering what reality? As those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Can you see, when you're sinning, do you realize what you're doing? You're tragically going back from the cosmic chasm that you have crossed in Christ. You're going from your status of new life that you had, and you're reverting back to death. It's like the Israelites liberated out of Egypt, going back to Egypt under that oppression. That's what we're doing. That's why Paul commands you, be, become what you already are in Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I mentioned beginning of my message, he gave a helpful illustration that gets at these commands. And this is what he wrote. He says, There is all the difference in the world between being in a given position and realizing you are in that position. Take the case of those poor slaves in the United States of America about 100 years ago. Well, now it's 150 more. 
There they were in a condition of slavery. Then the Civil War came, and as a result of that war, slavery was abolished in the United States. But what had actually happened? All slaves, young and old, were given their freedom, but many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free, but hundreds, not to say thousands of times, in their afterlives and experiences, many of them did not realize it. And when they saw their old master coming near them, they began to quake and tremble and to wonder whether they were going to be sold. You can still be a slave experientially even when you are no longer a slave legally. Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through his word that if we are in Christ, We are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. And if I fall into sin, as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. So realize it. Reckon it. You know, you read these stories about North Korean escapees who somehow escape their country and settle in South Korea, other places. They are now free from that oppressive regime. But you know, it's very heartbreaking to hear how many of these defectors have such difficulty adjusting to their newfound freedom. According to one study, at least 30%, I thought the number would be higher, but at least 30% of these um, uh, defectors suffer from full-on PTSD where they're constantly tormented by flashbacks of their past trauma, their past abuse. And they have fears constantly being captured again. Some have such a hard time adjusting that they even have the crazy thought of returning back to North Korea. You know, you've heard this phrase before, you know, you can take a person out of some place, you know, you can take a person out of Philly, but you can't take Philly out of them. You can take a person out of North Korea, but it's going to be a lifelong process to take North Korea out of them. And the truth is, we are taken out of the reign of sin under that regime. You are no longer in North Korea spiritually. But it's going to take a lifelong process for God to take sin out of us. And the first step to seeing that happen is remembering, reckoning, living in, pressing in more to your new status, your new identity in Jesus. Now, as I close, let me ask you, how do you really feel about the prospect of real change in your life? Have you found yourself thinking something like, you know, I'd like to change. I'd like to change, but you know what? God's going to just forgive me anyway, so why bother? Have you found yourself thinking that? Verse 1. Or, I'd like to change, But honestly, this is just the way I am and always will be. I've been like this for many years. This is just the way I am. Honestly, a defeated attitude. Or, now I like to change, but the power of that sin is just too strong for me to resist, to overcome. To all these thoughts, this passage is screaming to you. That is not your reality. That is not your identity. That is not your status. You live now under grace. 
So don't let your old master own you like that again. But you know, some of you might be thinking, might be feeling, but my addiction, I feel so enslaved by, it just owns me. Feel no hope. Was that true? That you're not able to fight against it? And by God's grace, over time, however long it takes, overcome it. Is that true? That your addiction completely owns you? You know, if someone barges in on you when you're watching porn, when you're purging yourself of your last meal, what will you do? You'll stop instantly. Why is that the case? Because in that moment, your fear of man, your fear of what people think of you, breaks that urge for one more fix. Do you realize you have an infinitely greater power in you than the fear of man to battle against your sin? You have Christ in you. That's your reality. as you walk out of here today, that's the first step for you. There's much more to come. But the first step is count yourself. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Pray that reality. Lay hold of that reality. Do all that you can to reckon that reality in your life. The next time, this coming week, you're tempted to sin, Speak to it. Preach to it with authority in your current status. You do not have power over me. You're not my master. I belong to another. Lay hold of that and fight from a position of victory. In this lifelong process of change, This is what God has done for you. And he will surely complete it in that victory with these realities. Let's pursue it after God and his righteousness with all that we are. Be what you already are in Christ.